0: To VMN Volume One Episode Nine, Bella Chow is truly appropriate to this episode, as most of the episode will be coverage of the A31 2019 protests against the Hate Pride March, which was a farcical straight Pride March held by Boston far right and fascists. We will start by breaking the normal r- rules of this podcast, which are that the hostess does not report but simply ask questions. Then we will hear the report from an anonymous medic, who managed to do his duties even in a paddy wagon. Next will be Medic Mom, who gained minor fame as the elderly woman who was brutally arrested by Boston police, who then stole her walking aid, A cab FTP. Seriously. The extreme brutality by Boston police was followed up by out-of-control illegality by a couple of judges in the Boston Municipal Court, reaching a fever pitch with the arrest of NLG lawyer Susan Church by Judge Sinnett, a judge who in his earlier career was given a pass on shooting someone in the back during a brawl outside a Boston government building. As of current news, a higher court slapped down sennett for his tantrum It is yet to be determined if he will face any consequences. This consensus is no. Ruckus will be giving her educated perspective on the courtroom drama and antics as she was doing court support for the actions. As some of the activists had data compromises due to carrying a cell phone during the action, we will have a discussion regarding Internet security with Allison from the Tor Project. First up is the hostess. Well, the hostess wears many hats. On Saturday at Boston, in the counter-protest to the straight Pride Parade, I was there to do de-escalation. We had been asked to be there by the people in Boston to take care of things. There were medics on our side, and there was de-escalation. Despite my utter distaste for Nazis and far-right, I'm pretty good at calming things down and keeping things safe. So we prepared to go down to Boston. We got radios. We got medic kits. And we went. It was a long drive. I'm old. I'm disabled, as is my wife, medic mom, who was the person who was so brutally attacked by the Boston Police Department. So after we left from near the Canadian border to rendezvous with people in mid-central Vermont, and from central Vermont, we carpooled down to southern Vermont, where we picked up more people. Two hours to central Vermont, and another hour plus to southern Vermont, and then another two plus hours to Boston. The drive to Boston was uneventful until the end when the traffic got bad. In Boston, it was kind of a nightmare getting the parking set up, but after some drama where one of the vehicles could not fit in parking places because we were in a very small parking garage, we got parked. We were set to rendezvous near the bandstand in Boston Commons, but as everyone from Vermont, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire were running late, we headed for the rendezvous point that's set by Solidarity Against Hate, which was at Arlington and Boylston. We hardly arrived at Arlington and Boylston when the police waded into the crowd. Somebody had a megaphone, and they were grabbing this person and brutalizing them. They didn't arrest them, but they took the megaphone saying they didn't have a permit to have it. Ironically, later in the day, the cops didn't seem to mind if anyone had megaphones. It seemed like they were just trying to brutalize people. Any excuse. The next incident, they ran into the crowd and grabbed one of the medics, who was doing absolutely nothing, and they threw him on the ground. Now, this is something we saw throughout the day. Fucking pigs grabbing people and brutalizing them and yelling, stop resisting, when people were not resisting. I don't know how many people really don't see through that, but it was transparent as hell that the cops were trying to trump up charges for resisting arrest where they did not exist. The police, as police normally, were not honorable, not in any way. The first, uh, the medic arrest, the arrest sheet said, following orders. So the police who arrested them didn't really know why they were being arrested, it seemed. And, Standing by this arrest, as I said, I wore many hats. At that point, during that arrest, I was the closest person to the arrest arrested person taking a video. Risking arrest myself, I guess, being that close. Then after that happened, I kept on hearing reports from further up. The hate pride, straight pride parade was set to leave from Copley Square, which is about three blocks from this rendezvous point, I kept on hearing reports about the march progressing. And at one point, we started to move from Arlington and Boylston towards Boylston and Tremont. At that point, we saw a huge number of bike police arrive. I mean, just probably 50, maybe, or 100 bike cops And at the corner of Boylston and Tremont, the cops had set up these barriers. They were steel barriers. They broke through their own barriers to attack people who were doing absolutely nothing. They were just targeting people with radios, red scarves, or medic bags. And there was a very ugly scene where they grabbed two or three of the medics or support people. And this one cop, who I would later find out was... Nicknamed Captain Pepper, he's a particularly vicious piece of work named Danilecki, I think, but I'm just going to call him Captain Pepper, because I want to humiliate him. I really think he should not have authority over any person, animal, and particularly not over a child. But he was threatening me and other people with pepper spray for no reason. After... That pinch point, we turned left on Tremont and headed towards Government Center. At that point, the hate parade passed, and we started marching there. I tried to stay close to the medics, so I was towards the end of the march. And when I, we got to the turnoff off of Tremont to go on to Congress, I think it's Sudbury, Sudbury or Sudbury or something like that, a 3%er came out, and he was saying, you yeah, know, everyone needs to get out of there. People are going to get hurt. And he, I was obviously wearing anti-fascist insignia, but he didn't care. He was just relating as a human to a human that it was going to be a really bad situation. That should have been a warning. So we went to this place across from City Hall. The police had made double barricades, and the right-wingers were even having a hard time getting into their own rally. The first incident was a Nazi dressed in black. It was a basic standard Nazi uniform, except instead of a Nazi flag, they had a don't tread on me, but it was black shirt type stuff. What was unusual about this is the police escorted him out. He wanted to leave. Most of the right-wingers did not have any police protection. The police let them wade into the crowd of anti-fascists who would yell at them. I didn't see any assaults. I heard somebody threw water at one of them, but I personally didn't witness any assaults on the right-wingers. I followed him out, and it was very curious how he was protected. But the other ones after that, pretty much, unless it looked like there was a brawl breaking out, the police didn't care about protecting the right-wingers. They cared about protecting the event. I honestly think that this one old crippled woman probably did more than the whole uh, police Department did de-escalating situations in that crowd. The cops were not interested in taking care of any particular people or preventing violence. Then, cops on motorcycles started lining up, and this was after 15 buses filled with riot cops with brand new equipment had pulled away. Apparently, they decided they didn't need an army of 180 to 250 riot cops to disperse a, a peaceful demonstration of about 750 to thousand what they did was put these motorcycles up the bike cops lifted their bikes over the motorcycle cops and lined up at no point did the cops give in order to disperse some of the more decent cops all who happened to be black said, you need to get out of the way. They saw me walking on a cane, so they gave me, you know, you really don't want to be here. So I got to the side. Then I hear screaming, and the cops were throwing bikes at people and trying to hurt people with the bikes. This certain particularly ugly uh white pig, the Danilaki guy, after they pushed people on, they t- they, I've been told to stay on the sidewalk. I got on the sidewalk. And then the cops started attacking people on the sidewalk. This pig, Danalecki, sprayed me. I thought he was spraying the whole crowd, but when I looked at the um, footage of him spraying me, he actually sprayed me specifically. I was filming him at the time. And uh, apparently film sprayed one of the people who had spoken at the Straight Pride Parade, the event. There's a libertarian who's actually trolled them by saying stuff they didn't like, and they sprayed him too. At that point, I had to see the spectacle of the police beating up my disabled wife. Uh, I kept a cool head through almost all of this. I don't care if I get hurt. When I see my loved ones getting hurt, it's different. I lost my cool after I saw them beating up on my wife. So I yelled at cops, I yelled at right-wingers after that. But after they pushed us out of the area in front of the rally point, the cops had pushed all the way up to an intersection, and then they stopped. And then they did a charge on foot against people, and they got, there was one person who was in the way, he fell down, and of course they're yelling, stop resisting. When he's not resisting, the fucking cops were fabricating resisting arrest uh, charges against people. It was absolutely disgusting. And at that point, some cop was threatening people with an iron bar. He was People were, were not even involved in the protest. He was just yelling, get off the stairs. There was a stairway, and he was just out of control. Then we got out of there, the rest of my comrades minus my wife, and I was just done. And we were sitting near the city plaza drinking some drinks that we got, and somebody else talked with the jail support and found out what was happening with my wife. They were saying that there was going to be bail. But when we were waiting, we got a call that she had been released. We went and got her, and we went home. There's a lot more to this, and there's stuff about drama in the courtrooms. Not only were the police behavior absolutely out of control and unacceptable, the very judges in the Boston Municipal Court were using this as a chance to push a vendetta against a progressive prosecutor who uh, didn't want to press charges when there really were no grounds to press charges, and they were refusing null Nolprosac. I didn't see all this, but I did see what seemed like, to me, it was hilarious. The judge had one of the NLG lawyers arrested for defending her client, for reading the law into the record. We'll see how it plays out. It seems like they overstepped their boundaries in an immense way. In many ways, I think this was planned out as a spectacle to justify them increasing penalties for assaults on officers as the governor pushed that forward just after this happened. And all the time I was there, I didn't see a single assault on officers. One of the more disgusting incidents was when the judge insisted that there was a victim in disorderly conduct, and the victim was the cops. Basically, the chant of the day from the system is how awful it was that the cops were victimized. From where I stood, I saw brutal, white-shirted cops hurting people, and I saw the blue-shirted cops trying to keep their jobs by doing brutal stuff. There's going to be more about this. I'm going to end now. I don't usually talk. I'm the hostess. Next up is the anonymous medic. I have an anonymous medic who was present at the police riot on August 31st when there were counter-protests against the straight pride parade. Welcome.
1: Good to be here. How are you doing today?
0: I'm all right. Can you tell me what happened on August 31st?
1: Yeah, so I'm uh, a medic, uh, he, him. I was called up to Boston by a couple of friends to help provide medical support at what we assumed would be a uh, small counter-protest. It ended up being a police riot when, right the bat, the police were charging the barricades that they erected in order to pepper spray and arrest people who were standing in the area that the BPD had designated to be allowed to stand in. So that was fun. Uh, my first victims were probably around 11.30ish. After that, nothing really happened until the afternoon. You know, it was a fun private event. I mean, you get a bunch of queer folks together. It was a good time. But at 4.30, the police decided, rather than, you know, continue us, as disperse, as, as we'd been doing the past 20 minutes, they were going to disperse us by force. So they lined up a bunch of motorcycles with bike cops in front. The bike cops advanced and I ended up uh standing at the front of the line. When the officer told me to leave to move, I said I can't move, there's a car behind me, and I was promptly grabbed and thrown to the ground, dragged back like probably twenty feet on the ground, flipped over, handcuffed, and thrown in a paddy wagon. In the wagon I was partnered with five of my comrades, all five of whom had pepper spray injuries. So as soon as they closed the door, I took off my cuffs and tried to cheer everyone, you know, spare cars with water and just try to make sure that they realize this hurts, but it'll get better in the next hour or so. Over the course of the next two hours, things didn't really get better because there was no ventilation. They had us locked in a metal box for two hours where we would drive forward about 10 feet, stop, drive backwards about 10 feet, turn a little bit and drive forwards. The entire time. Probably the best moment as an EMT so far was managing five patients, half them with contact lenses. As an aside, if you're going to a protest, don't wear contact lenses because they don't go particularly well to tear gas or pepper spray. At the station, we were booked. It took about three hours. And then myself and the two other non-juvenile male-identifying prisoners were released at midnight, uh, after which... Things calmed down a little bit, and we were all um, to be arraigned on Wednesday the 3rd, 4th? what day was Wednesday.
0: Let me look. Uh, Wednesday was the
1: 4th. Yep. We were to be arraigned on Wednesday the 4th, represented by the National Lawyers Guild. And then on the 3rd, we realized that the judge was not particularly amenable to the DA's decision not to prosecute any of us. So on the 4th, the DA decided to put their foot down and, uh, file what's called a nil cross, which means they are officially refusing to prosecute. The judge then had one of the National Lawyers Guild attorneys thrown in jail for that. So that was fun, but end of the day, almost all of us with what they consider to be nonviolent crimes were uh, not arraigned and released, either was community service or nothing. Seeing as I'm an EMT and my job is community service, I was released with no fault necessary. After that, we went out and had a couple drinks. It was fun. So, all told, 7 out of 10, would not recommend.
0: Yes. So, what is your feeling about Boston now?
1: Uh, good city, bad government, the cops are jackasses. Oh, I did. I'm not sure if we met Captain Pepper or not. I certainly wasn't sprayed by him. However, at one point, an officer wearing a black vest approached the back of the paddy wagon as it was being opened and yelled at all of us to get back against the walls and told me to get my hands out of that bag as I was reaching in my bag for a water bottle to give to one of the patients who he had pepper sprayed. I'm not certain if it was him or not, given that I was otherwise occupied, and literally no other set of eyes in the back of the wagon worked. As soon as he turned around, all the other cops present rolled their eyes, and I immediately went back to providing patient care.
0: Did he have a blue shirt or a white shirt on?
1: I'm not certain. All I know is that rather than wearing the standard bike uniform of blue bottom, yellow shoulders, he had something covering his shoulders and he had yellow sleeves. Beyond that, I'm not certain. It could go either way. Looking at the timeline though, he was very busy, so I'm not sure when he would have time to stop the wagon. However, we also didn't leave the scene at all, so he very well could have just walked over, interrogated us and left. I cannot confirm or deny that.
0: So what is your feelings about the behavior of the judge?
1: Absolutely out of line, and I'm not sure what he meant to accomplish by it. The law is quite clear on this, and he had a lawyer thrown in jail, which is rather chilling. That someone can be, as a representative of the law, arrested for doing their their business in the law. As far as I'm aware, this has never happened where someone's been thrown out simply for arguing the law. And I don't know what he was trying to accomplish, seeing as he had no issues with my case being no-prosecuted had no issues with anyone else's case being Nolprosk, but was trying to make the argument that a disorderly conduct had to have a victim and was not particularly amenable to the fact that the cops did not provide any information on this. There's also in case law that mass arrests are illegal, but that's beside the point. So, what are you trying to do? I don't know. I feel like you was just trying to cover the cops' ass, because they arrested 36 of us with little provocation.
0: Were you there for the first arrest, where they just grabbed someone out of the crowd?
1: I was treating someone's with dehydration at the time, so I didn't notice that. Mm-hmm. However, I was there when we were forming a, a, a circle around John Brown as they were treating someone. That was uh, when I ended up partnering with some of the MADBT folks to treat people who were penetrated in that instance. Since we were busy with that, when the trade passed, I never actually saw the neo-Nazis whatsoever. As soon as we were done treating the people down there, uh, myself and a couple of MADVT people just, you know, hightailed it up to the protest.
0: Understood. How many injuries did you see, and what kind of injuries did you treat?
1: That I personally treated, I saw five, eight pepper sprays that I myself treated, that I saw all of them, some bumps and bruises being arrested on the pavement. I saw one person who had an arm broken. I'm not sure the cause, but they said it was a police baton. Well, I don't know if it was broken don't have x-ray vision, but I saw a couple of medics splinting them with a the sand splint, so I'm assuming it was injured. At the courthouse, I saw someone who had been steel cuffed, and their entire hand lost circulation. They had their arm recast with a few broken bones in the side of the hand.
0: Are you uh, looking at any uh, legal recourse for what happened to you?
1: The National Lawyers Guild is going to be reaching out to us once criminal proceedings are finished for the folks who are arrested and arraigned.
0: Many activists have lived for many years off of settlements from uh from police
1: brutality. I mean I'm going to paramedic school, so hopefully that can help with that.
0: It would be great to have the cops pay for you to be a paramedic. <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything else you can add? I mean it's uh it's it's been a short interview so far.
1: Um my account wasn't as interesting as some of the other people's. Uh main things listening, remember to drink water beforehand, don't wear contact lenses, and uh stay high rated, stay fed. Yeah, I'm not sure what else to add in this interview. My account wasn't nearly as interesting as some of the other people's.
0: Will you go to anti fascist protests again?
1: Oh, absolutely. I called my mom on Sunday and she said, Well, next time don't get caught. So that's about the feeling of our family. Yeah. But I'm obviously going to go protest some more. Hopefully not get arrested, but then hopefully they don't arrest me. Usually they not arrest medics because our job is to help the people who the cops be half to <laughs> death. So, going to keep going until they either arrest me or shoot me.
0: What I saw on Saturday was that the cops were targeting
1: the medics. I heard that. I heard. At least six medics, myself included, who were targeted, as well as several other people providing care, either with eyewash or with moving uh, crabs people. One particular childlike account was uh, Cap and Pepper leaving someone being arrested, walking up to a medic, spraying them in the eyes, then turning around and walking back. This was absolutely targeted at us, probably because they knew we were there to help people, and it was a demoralizing tactic. Yes. Now that you mention that, that might be why the judge had the attorneys thrown in jail.
0: What was she doing about that? Was she arguing about the medics, or what?
1: No. She was arguing with the judge that what I was doing was legal. but I think it was more a way to um, demotivate us. Might well have been just a way to demotivate us with how the proceedings were going to go.
0: Did it demotivate you?
1: Ah, uh, we had a hot sec where we we generally like, what the hell just happened? But the entire time we were in the courthouse, our heads were held high. What we were doing was morally correct, therefore, arrested or no, we were doing good.
0: Yes, yes. I got sprayed, he sprayed me specifically because I was filming, and you know what? I don't give a damn.
1: <laughs> and you also use a crutch and are yeah. somewhat advanced in years. I'm not sure what threat he considered you to be. But then they also arrested your spouse, who had a bike dropped on her so there's that.
2: And she's even
0: older, and even more disabled than me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I love Boston. Not particularly fond of the cops there. I was there before this, but... You
0: said your family was into this. Are you willing to talk a little bit about your family's background?
1: My dad is a uh, military veteran. He's been in in the service until I was... Actually, only earlier this year he retired. Uh, He was a bit Less thrilled, however, is mostly as a result of my being arrested. He doesn't particularly care if I go to protests. My mother, as long as I am providing care and not causing trouble, they're liberal, not leftists, but they're the liberal that I can tolerate. Now, if we talking about family, I've become so close with the entire community in, uh, the n- New England states, Connecticut, Massachusetts, uh, Vermont, and Rhode Island. I feel absolutely welcome with the left all around here. Harshly is a little of being arrested with half of them, so there's that.
0: It's a great bonding experience to get pepper sprayed and thrown in a uh, paddy wagon together.
1: Oh, absolutely. We were singing back um, and Tans and other old songs together. It was a good time.
0: Yeah, I heard you were doing word games and stuff
1: like that as well. Yep. It was a good time. I mean, obviously it was miserable, but it would have more miserable if we had had lower morale. However, we were doing what was right, and so morale was pretty high.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you for giving me the time for the interview. I very much appreciate it. I could help. Have a great day.
1: Bye. You too. Take
0: care. Now we will hear the story told by Medic Mom. I'm happy to introduce Medic Mom, the famous woman who was attacked and brutalized by the police at Boston while doing her medic duties. She is the quote-unquote elderly woman who was, had her cane taken away by the Boston police. Welcome, Medic Mom.
3: Hi. So, yeah, it was, uh, I was there as a medic because, you know, I'm almost 64 years old. I'm not the healthiest person around, but I've had various medic training during the over the years, including refreshers back at Occupy DC, you know, where I got the longer training to be a street medic. I was out there with Mad VT, John Brown Gun Club, because we had been invited to support, and that's specifically what we were out there for. Uh, some of us were support, watching for problems to, you know, deescalate. Others, such as myself, were out there with water bottles and medical gear. So if anybody got injured, there would be somebody right there to take care of them. But I walk up. I walk with the use of a cane. I need at least one cane. On good days, one. Bad days. I'm using two of them. They're those kind of canes with the, uh, with a handle for you to hold on to, and then the clamp that kind of goes around your your forearm or your upper arm. I last week. It's now been seven days. I was using one. I was pretty good when I started out the day. Had my medic bag over my shoulder even slapped on some tape for a while that showed that I was a medic, wandered around the parade. We got there a long time before the parade started, so I just wandered back and forth along the parade route, seeing what was going on, just watching to see if there were any problems between people, and also, since it was a hot day, I was already having to pass out water to people. Once the parade itself got started, I was positioned kind of halfway along the parade route. And since I had a radio to keep in touch with my other medics, I gave everybody an idea, you know, this is where the straight pride march actually is. During this time, I did see a couple of cases where police would suddenly dash into the crowd and grab somebody and bring them back out to the road, away from everybody else, and usually arrest them. I mean and no and no time did I see why they dashed into the crowd, but I saw at least one medic targeted and I don't know why a medic would be targeted. In any case, you know, I knew there were plans that for some of some of the people to make person walls across the street, prevent the march from even happening. Um, From what I've heard, the police made it a point to not let those happen or to break them up immediately. Most of the day, especially with the parade happening, I just reported things and watched for anybody needing help. After the parade had passed me, I started cutting my way over to where the the after-parade rally was going to happen. At this time, I met up with other medics, and we just did a a sweep, seeing if anybody needed help. Uh, There were people who had been pepper-sprayed already, who uh, most of them had been treated already, but some needed additional treatment, because with all the sweat, it was getting in their eyes, and so we washed it off. We circled on on around to I guess it was Congress Street behind the Government Center, and this is where they were ha- where Straight Pride was having their rally. Those of us who were in the counter protest were out on the street and being very noisy. It seemed like the whole tactic was to drown them out. And judging by the number of people that actually came to listen to them, to be there with them. We had them overwhelmed probably ten to one. So we just made a lot of noise and tried to mock them. As other people have made mention, this was not actually straight pride. There was no seeking equality. There was no trying to be proud that I'm straight. Speaker after speaker were speaking of things. Um, there was one, the supposed spiritual leader, who was who was calling us abominations because we were queer, that we shouldn't be allowed. There were others who were being very Trump-centric, and if you watch what the Trump administration has done, you can see that they are destroying the very foundations of what this country was supposedly built on. And that's a whole nother story, but, you know, if you take it at face value, this current administration, more so than any previous administration in in probably a hundred years, is actively trying to destroy the very foundations of what America is supposed to be about. But getting to the end of the rally itself they the police decided it was time to clear the roads so they brought up motorcycles nobody told us what it was about they just brought the motorcycles up and made a wall my own thought was you know they're worried about the safety of the of the straight pride r- ralliers, the marchers whoever and I expected that they would then escort them out in the other direction from where we were blocked off. And, you know, that would be that. And once they were gone, we'd, we would definitely be breaking up because there was, would be no more reason to uh, be out there protesting against them. Then the bicycle cops came out. They hefted their bicycles over the motorcycles placed them between the motorcycles and us who were standing there and it did not take very long before one person who seemed to be in charge I later found that that was probably Captain Danielecki but someone who appeared to be in charge gave them the order to charge and that's what they did they were They picked up their bikes and slammed them full force against whoever was in the front line. When I noticed the bikes come over, I've seen this tactic before, and I was a bit worried. So I started heading for the sidewalk. In the crush, I kind of got trapped. I couldn't move any farther. So I was watching what was happening with the officers. When they started slamming them against people... You know, here, I'm trying to back up and the people behind me, you know, I can't get past them. One of the, one of the people who was hit the first time with the bikes went down. In the process of him going down, I went down. I ca- I do not know if the police grabbed, grabbed him to arrest him before or after a bike was slammed against me on the ground. I wasn't even standing up at that point. I was on the ground. I reached for my cane, which had come out of my hand. uh, One of the cops stepped on it and told me, You're under arrest. He then picked it up and walked away with it. This guy was a bearded cop. Thing is, since he took it away, I have not seen my crutch again. My medic bag had been hanging on my right shoulder. It fell off, but it was right beside me. Fortunately for me, uh, I also had some of the dilute magnesia for washing pepper spray out of my eyes because Lecky came right up to me and with the spray not six inches from my face, sprayed it straight into my eyes. So, first thing I did was grab grab some of the dilute amnesia and start washing my face with it getting it out of my face then at some point my bag was picked up by an officer I do not see did not see who it was because I had another officer telling me to quit resisting and get up I'm telling him I'm disabled I have partial paralysis on, on my left side it makes it hard to walk but not impossible I'm also... You know, I'm not that healthy. He didn't listen to me. He finally just grabbed me and and dragged me to to my feet and then started walking me very quickly uh far too quickly for me to keep up. so I was half falling all the time. He started walking me towards the paddy wagons and then passed me off to the first of two cops that ended up walking me over there the the cop that he passed me off to was a taller, uh, taller black cop. He seemed to have a, a conscience. Because when I told him what was going on, he slowed down, he gave me assistance. He slowed down, he gave me assistance. And at one point on some of the videos, you see where we were stopped and you can see how much pain I was in. I had been slammed to the ground. I already have problems with my back, so, you know, it just made it worse. That officer then passed me over to another one and told him point blank, you take her from now. I'm not going to put her in the paddy wagon. This younger officer uh, did realize that I was actually disabled, and he he too gave me support. One thing I noticed the whole time is the only officers that that gave any concern for me were black officers. White officers didn't give a damn. Black officers listened and would actually treat me like a human being rather than like a thing. Ultimately, they got me in the paddy wagon. And one thing we noticed in the hour or two that they kept us in there, the ventilation fans were never turned on. This is an 84-degree day, an enclosed metal box. And they didn't even turn on the ventilation fans to at least get us some fresh air. They took us to the precinct, did the booking during booking I reminded them that my crutch you know that I hadn't seen my crutch anymore I also reminded them that my medic bag had been taken away by an officer and had not been returned so you know multiple times they were aware that I had things missing they booked me put me in with another woman for a while and we just kind of Sat there chatting until they finally released us. Interest, interestingly, both of us were released. We were told that we were being unarrested, although I don't even know if that's a term, and that the, that we would be sent summons for our court dates found that kind of interesting but got in touch with National Lawyers Guild and also uh, well got in touch with National Lawyers Guild they told I was told that I had to be there Tuesday that my name was on the list so I went back to Boston on Tuesday as it turned out my particular case had been adjudicated the day before. They had, I was one of the few people that got what they call null no suppress, null no, no prosecchi or no prosecution. The DA and prosecutor had determined that they did not want to prosecute me for the charges. It was um, disorderly conduct and resisting arrest. So obviously they saw right off that there was no reason to be, you know, to be arresting me or prosecuting me over these. The woman who had been in the holding tank with me—it uh, turns out that they refused to uh, n- null pro her. Although when I was there Tuesday, the lawyers did say that that was being reevaluated in any case what i saw was out of control officers i saw a standing army out there at no time was anything announced to you know say it's time to break up it's time to clear the roads um You know, nothing, nothing was announced. And I've been, I've been to numerous protests. When it gets to that point, they make it clear it is, you know, anything beyond this point will involve arrest. This was not done there at any time. They just, they just brought the officers up to the front line with weapons, with their bicycles, and used those as weapons to batter the people in the front line. And anybody who fell was arrested. Any questions? I've pretty much, pretty much given the narrative of what happened to me and what I saw. I can't really speak to much more without a focus. What happened in the courtroom
0: that you saw with the when, when you were in the before court
3: room, the negotiation room? Mm. Okay, I never made it into the actual courtroom. They took us into a mediation room. Um, That's where NLG let those of us who were due in on Tuesday, let them know who their lawyer was, and also made sure that if you had your own lawyer, they were aware. That's when I was notified that my case had already been dealt with just want to correct things.
0: Your case was supposed to be on Tuesday. We were in Boston on Wednesday.
3: Uh, Good point. Good point. Having my days thrown off. It's been a rough week having to go to Boston twice. And I live way up in the north of Vermont. So that's a long distance. And to have to make that trip twice in just a couple of days plus the fact that last Saturday it was hot, we were out on our feet all day. Um, No, it was tiring. But to get back to the court, one of the lawyers who was defending their client, one of the lead NLG lawyers, was arrested by the court for contempt. What she had done was begin reading the actual law into the record. Uh, The judge who was sitting there, uh, Judge Sinnott, I believe the name was, um, he didn't like that. And he clapped her with contempt and actually had her taken off to the cells uh, to be booked and everything. The judge was trying to argue
0: that the protesters victimize the police by acting in a disorderly fashion. Disorderly conduct is not a crime
3: with a victim. Disorderly conduct is a victimless crime. It's, it's like, I mean, there are so many of these victimless crimes. If I do something that doesn't hurt anybody else, it really shouldn't be a crime but, you know, disorderly conduct. So I'm being disorderly. What's disorderly about standing there, about being very noisy, to drown out someone who is saying things that are hateful? I don't see it.
0: Much of the narrative from the side of the government was trying to make the police into victims. They lied about assaults. They lied about... Urine bottles. I never saw a urine bottle. I never saw anyone throw anything. The most I saw was uh, when somebody was arrested, an empty water bottle got thrown away from the sink, not at the officers. Afterwards, the governor agreed with the police union to, to increase the penalties for assaulting an officer. I believe this whole charade was planned beforehand or perhaps making more laws to protect police who really don't need more laws and also to justify the acquisition of more militarized equipment. I saw much brand new riot equipment on the cops so this may just have been a charade to justify more riot equipment. Earlier in the month or in the summer the police had assaulted an encampment of disabled people and stole all their wheelchairs and crushed them. So this is part of some sort of overarching plan to create more control. That is in my belief. Yeah. Um,
3: it did seem that this was, if not pre-planned, it was something that was probably discussed as the protests were ongoing, I noticed, I noticed that their equipment seemed mighty new. That may just be coincidence. As our hostess said, I didn't see anything thrown at anybody. There were a few times that things were dropped, but I didn't see anything thrown. One thing I did see is that of the times that I saw the police run into the crowd to get somebody um, the majority of them were medics it seemed to me that they were targeting anybody with a red cross Um, they were also targeting anybody with a radio my particular group we did have radios we wanted to keep in touch with each other and we knew that if someone was hurt We would need to call other medics in for assistance, probably. And I noticed that some of the people attacked were people who had radios, who seemed to be either in charge or at least organized. Yes, that's
0: what I saw, too. The first arrest I witnessed was there was a medic standing on the corner of Arlington and Boylston. They were not doing anything. They were just standing there, and the police charged in... And grabbed them what made this arrest particularly disgusting and despicable was that the officer started putting his knee of one of the many on the person's head and put the full weight and they were yelling stop resisting he wasn't resisting he was in pain one of the th- I saw more than one arrest where Cops were brutalizing people and yelling, stop resisting, in order to justify a fake charge of resisting arrest. Honestly, I didn't see anyone resist arrest uh, who was grabbed by the police. Not that I have any problems with resisting arrest. I don't. But most of those charges were fabricated by cops who were doing what cops do. They were testifying.
1: lying.
0: Indeed.
3: Indeed. Like in my case, you know, I need the crutch to walk very far. Maybe if I've got a wall to balance on it, I can get by. I'm not fast. So when the cop is telling me to get up, I said, are you going to get up or are you going to continue being an asshole? And I'm like, I'm disabled. It's hard for me to move. And as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, he he didn't listen to any of it. He finally grabbed me with both arms and yanked me to my feet. You know, this was not assisting me to get up. This was physically yanking me up onto my feet. Um, And then when he, what, you know, then he grabbed my arm and as he's walking me away, he's walking as fast as he could. And I'm stumbling. And with an already bad back, he's just wrenching my back worse.
0: So do you have anything more to say on this interview? It's uh,
3: gone on for a little time. Not really to do with what happened. What I do want to say has to do with, and I put quotes around this, the law. If people remember, slavery was legal. The fascist actions in Hitler's Germany were legal. Jim Crow was legal. That doesn't mean they're good laws. It just means that someone's made laws to beat up others. And we need to, we need to resist bad laws. We need to recognize them for what they are, resist them, and at the very minimum, repeal them. We did that with Jim Crow, although over the years things have returned. We did that with uh, slavery, with the, I believe it was the 13th Amendment. But, you know, of course we're seeing uh, people who are incarcerated being forced to work for not minimum wage, but sub-minimal wage they're slaves they're literal slaves and in fact it's in the constitution that that's the only time that slavery is allowed is that a punishment for a crime if it's going to be a punishment for a crime why doesn't the judge say and this person will be in slavery for one year so one thing I am pushing for is get in touch with your representatives your senators people like that pinpoint these bad laws and get them turned, get them repealed. Make it so that the police don't have those type of laws to batter people with. So what do you have to say about sovereign immunity? Oh boy, that could be a whole nother podcast, but in a nutshell, no person in so-called authority should have any greater protections... Than the person they're beating up. If you assault me, you're charged with assault. It doesn't matter whether you're a person on the street or the police officer that walked up to me. Either way, you know, if you assault me for no reason, you're, you should be prosecuted for assault. That police officer should not have any special immunities saying that, oh yeah, I can come up and hit you with my baton, and it's not illegal. Uh, Yes, it is. Thank you very much, Medic Mom. And thank you for letting me
0: vent. Now we will hear from Ruckus, who is doing courtroom support, and who did an amazing job talking to the mainstream media after Judge Dick Sinnott arrested NLG lawyer Susan Church. Hello, everybody. This is Ruckus from Showing Up for Racial Justice Boston. Hello, Ruckus. Hi, how are you doing? Very good. So can you tell us a little bit about what happened on August 31st in Boston with a police riot and in particular what has happened in the courtroom and all the antics that have gone on in the various courtrooms?
2: Sure, just to provide some context on my involvement with uh, Straight Pride is Hate Pride, my organization, Surge Boston, uh, and myself were working with other organizations to co-lead the jail support effort, so I wasn't actually on the ground. On Saturday, I was off-site making sure that there were people supporting those who uh, had been arrested, so um, I can't speak with great detail to what happened on the streets, but it was if, as um, we saw in 2014 and uh, beyond the Black Lives Matter marches in Boston, a police riot against activists who were showing up against white supremacy and fascism. Um, we had about 34 to 36 arrestees, Some of them juveniles. Many of them were, uh, you know, had to be decontaminated from pepper spray or had concussions or um, I think someone's hand was broken there are many, many issues with how the police use force against protesters in a way that they do against black and brown people every day, but in this context of protest against the supremacist, like, straight pride organizers uh, was really beyond the pale for what we tend to expect in Boston. Or at least I haven't seen it since the Black Lives Matter marches of a few years ago. In court, these protesters were prim were entirely except for the one remaining case. Arraigned under Judge uh, Dick Sennett, who is, uh, so has been on the bench, I would say, for, I think, two years or so at this point. He, uh, his wife is also on the bench. His family is, he has cops in his family. He is just, uh, throughout his time on the bench so far, has really demonstrated that he does not care about black and brown people, that he does not care about people who are struggling with addiction. Uh, and that he is really, really hostile to those groups as well as being hostile to protesters. He showed this primarily by really fighting with the district attorneys who were in many cases seeking dismissal of charges or a null prop. So for those who are listening and might not be familiar with these terms, a dismissal is when the as far as I understand it anyway, is when the district attorney and the judge and the defense all agree that they're going to dismiss the case, uh, and the charge will be dropped. A no process or no-prosecky is pre-arraignment, or it, it, can, it, can be, it can happen before and after arraignment, arraignment being when you are actually formally charged, uh, but it does not actually require a judge's approval to do that. The DA is saying, we're not going to prosecute this if there's not how we're going to allocate our resources at this time. So basically, on Tuesday, Senate... Um, was rejecting, uh, the request for dismissal and was specifically got into, I guess, a tiff, let's say, with the DAs around some, about the no prosecute filing for one defendant in particular, who he then, um, had reincarcerated for a few minutes, or sorry, a few hours, let's say, um, at a $750 bail. Um, which is just totally unheard of, and the high court ruling has come down on the side of the DA's office, about that he had overstepped his authority to interfere with the Nolpasecki filing in that case. On Wednesday, he did accept; uh, he did not seem to fight as much on the null process for defendants, but he, in a similar situation, so he was attempting to. Like, again, sort of throw up, uh, objections to null cross or to dismissal for some the defendants. And the, uh, the defense attorney, uh, I think her name is Susan Blanchard, uh, from the National Lawyers Guild, who's a prominent Cambridge-based immigration attorney, was doing her job and was reading him case law about who can be considered a victim because the police report did not include for the person who was being discussed a victim of assault and battery. So you can't really like the judge was trying to say that the they had to investigate and say who they had to consult the victim of the assault uh, and then they're saying well there is no victim listed so you can't do that basically and then as she was reading him case law about this he had her thrown into contempt of court even going so far as to have her arrested and taken into custody uh, for a few hours and then she was released around 2:15 so it was just about three hours total. Um, and this, of course, attracted a lot of mainstream media attention, uh, as it should, because these kinds of judicial overreaches are, uh, you know, part of the growing fascist movement in this country. Um, and I think it's really important to draw attention to the fact that these, although maybe lawyers don't get, you know, clapped in chains every day, like Vic Senate and other judges at Boston Municipal Court and all over this city, uh, hold people on high bail, particularly black and brown people, um, who, like, for for no reason, um, except for um, whatever uh, whatever itch they're scratching for themselves. You know, like, one thing that's really important to me in these cases is to think about the broader context of the violence and the white supremacy and the fascism of court, prisons, and police, where we see uh, organizations like Court Watch Massachusetts and the Mass Bail Fund and Families for Justice is Healing every day showing up in courtrooms and at jails talking about the need to end money bail because of the way in which it per- suppresses black and brown people and poor people's ability to live their lives. It is strictly punitive, and it does not so – there's been uh, other other cities and other states that have instituted, like, for example, a robo-calling reminder service, and they get an 85% like, success rate on – people coming up, showing up to court. So if the ostensible reason that you're, you're assigning bail is for, so for people to have an incentive to come to court, then that seems to be achieved by a robocall, and there's no need to, like, plague people with hundreds of thousands of dollars in bail, which often results in of people being... Held, and it, I think there are statistics that indicate that being held for held on bail for your trial or uh, whatever way in which your case is resolved, actually really increases chances of you taking a bad deal or uh, being found guilty. Because of course, being held in any sort of cage as a human being is extremely detrimental to mental health. It's also an indicator of poverty and lack of resources. That would it leads you to have like a good defense, and you're just ready to to take whatever because you don't want to be, you want to have as little time in that cage as possible. We also need to be thinking about Operation Clean Sweep, which again, court watch Massachusetts has been really reporting on. There's another instance of police violence and overreach where a correctional officer outside of South Bay detention facility at the beginning of August, uh, it is instigated a scuffle with some of the homeless folks that make their lives uh, out on that. Uh, little, I don't know, if you're not from Boston, it's hard to explain, but, like, there's a little road near, like, a food bank, a methadone clinic, and the jail, and people had set up their lives there, and the police instigated a couple, then came back the next night and started arresting anybody with an open warrant, and, you know, many of these are default warrants by people who have to go to court for these BS reasons. They don't, like, they're homeless, so they might not have a phone, or they might not have a calendar, or they might not have a way of, keeping in track with their court dates, and then they get thrown in the in clay. They also did really egregious things. The police also did extremely egregious things, like throwing away one person's wheelchair and all their medications to a dumpster. So, yeah, I think we have to look at what happened on August 31st as, like, yes, egregious. Yes, an example of police brutality and fascism and the ways in which the state protects fascist movement building. We also have to understand that this is happening every single day it's to our neighbors and our friends. Here in Boston
1: and all over the country. Has
0: there been ADA suits filed uh, against the Boston police for stealing people's uh, wheelchairs? I understand one of the protesters uh, on A31 was on, had a walking aid and that was stolen by the police. I believe she will be filing an ADA suit on those grounds.
2: Yeah, I have not heard uh, about that specifically. Uh, I think there are many grounds for which. People should be filing ADA suits against the police, but I'm I'm not aware of an Operation Queen's case if those people have the resources uh, to do that.
0: Are all the cases from A31 disposed of, or are there upcoming court dates?
2: There are upcoming court dates. I would say um, that maybe a third of them have been resolved uh, through dismissal or no cross, but the remaining ones have. Some are doing pretrial diversions, and some have further trial hearings coming up um, in September and November.
0: What charges uh, do they dismiss, and what charges are they refusing to dismiss?
2: I don't have that in front of me right now. Um, there's a mix. A lot of the disorderly conduct were sort of more easily dismissed, and some of the assault and matter on and a police officer in particular where a victim wasn't named have been dismissed, but that's not true of all the cases.
0: Some of the cases where they said they were resisting arrest, it was just cops yelling, don't resist, while they arrested people so they could bring resisting arrest charges when it was clear nobody was resisting. that's
2: yeah, uh, very standard tactic.
0: Do you ha- know what happened with the media people who were arrested and brutalized?
2: I don't. I did hear that there were undercover police officers with fake media badges who then staged fake media arrests, but I don't know what happened to journalists specifically that day. As I said, I wasn't on the ground, so I haven't been able to track that specifically.
0: Is there anything else you want to add on to what you've said here?
2: I just want to encourage everybody who's listening, wherever you are, to support campaigns led by directly impacted communities to do things like end money bail, to reduce police budgets, and to abolish the police eventually, as well as abolishing prisons and really thinking about reinvesting in education, healthcare, housing, and jobs because these are the things that will help us reimagine our communities. There's a, actually a state-by-state uh, campaign being led by the National Council of Formerly Incarcerated and Incarcerated Women and Girls, which is called, it's a state-by-state clemency campaign, and it's starting with women in in all 50 states who have been, uh, let's see, let's see, there are, there's four criteria, who are either elderly, chronically ill, enduring 10-plus year sentences, or uh, criminalized survivors of domestic violence. To have those women granted clemency first as a stepping stone to abolition. Uh, and that's, that's a state by state campaign targeting governors. So I really encourage everyone to check out the council uh, and get involved with that campaign. I know that they, they're working on making quotes to represent each of the women in each state. There's also petitioning and postcarding and other events that will be available. But so I really encourage people to take our rage and our, and our justified pain and anger about what happened on the 31st and bring it to a wider movement. To abolish prisons and to abolish white supremacy as it functions every single day.
0: What is your take on this new round of so-called justice district attorneys? We have them here in Vermont and they say all sorts of good things. They send their office people to go visit the jails, like being in jail for five hours would inform people of what it's like to be in jail for years. And they, what's your take on these justice prosecutors?
2: Well, I want to say that, like, I, I'm very appreciative that D.A. Rollins is in office and that her office is, I think, pursuing in many cases a more just course of action in relation to these arrests and, you know, doing courageous things like challenging the police commissioner and the judges like Dick in it. Um, I do think that ideologically and in a zoomed-out view, I think that a D.A. is still a D.A. They can do a lot of good uh, in the in the short run, but we really have to be, making sure our movements don't get distracted by this idea that we can fix the system, it really does have to be abolished. I think justice DAs can help us strategically minimize suffering in our communities, and I I think that they're, again, a stepping stone, but we should not think that a DA is ultimately aligned with the people's interests, because there are still injustices being perpetuated by and his office, and that's because the whole system is unjust. You know, I, I was in Oxford Court on Tuesday for a different matter, and There was a young man held on a $5,000 bail, and his family did not speak English and there was no interpretation offered to them and no pathway to getting $5,000 to get their son back. These are all things that are still happening under the Rawls administration and we have to be courageous as freedom fighters to think about what does it mean to be in solidarity with people who have charges that are something we don't want to think about, if it's possession of a firearm, if it's um, assault and battery that actually happened, you know? Like, we have to really think about how we're going to handle harm um, and refuse to be complicit in it. And I think that the justice TAs, as you've called them, are trying to reduce the scope of violence, and I think that's very commendable, and I'm glad for my friends and comrades in Boston that we have J. A. Rollins' in the office doing what they're doing. But overall, like, we have to actually abstain from this, this violence of the courts and the prisons and the police.
0: Thank you. I appreciate the way you state that. So thank you very much for your time on Vermont Movement News. The, hopefully this will be published within the week, and hopefully we won't have to revisit what happened on A31 again.
2: <laughs> yes, hopefully we will move forward, and this will shine a light on the police brutality that's often police partner practices every day, and our next process will be much less eventful. <laughs>
0: Just before you get off, do you think that Dick Senate and Captain Pepper, uh, what's his name, Dan Alasky, will face any consequences due to this?
2: I'm just going to go with no. I would be pleasantly surprised if they did. But, uh, again, I, I think they are symptoms of the problem and not the problem itself. Um, and I don't expect for them to really feel any material consequences uh, until we actually succeed in abolishing it, but if push their part.
0: Excellent. Have a great day. All
2: right. Take care.
0: Bye. Since people had cell phones stolen by the police at the Boston event, I brought in Allison from the Tor Project to discuss Internet security for activists. Hello, everybody. I have Allison from the Tor Project and Library Freedom Project. She'll be talking about Internet security for activists and pretty much whatever she wants to talk about today. Hello, Allison.
4: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So what are the basics? What do you want activists to think about when they're doing Internet stuff?
4: I think that the first thing that I try to advise people about is not so much like a specific technical tool, but more about having um, a security mindset or maybe, maybe a different way to think about it. The, the thing that I would advise people first about is having a security mindset or put differently an adversarial mindset. Um, what I mean by this is trying to approach your internet activity or really your life by thinking about who might want to try to harm you with this information. And I realize that that kind of thinking is stressful and I don't, I don't mean to suggest that people should be you know, paranoid all the time about, um, you know, police or fascists or, or things like that. But I do think that it's important to have this sort of framework because then anything that you do online, you can think, well, is there a way that this could be used against me somehow? Um, tools and specific techniques kind of follow from that. But I think overall, you know, when we go on Twitter or Facebook or when we, you know, when we have events for, um, you know, organizing activities, we need to be thinking about what information we're revealing to people who might want to harm us or threaten us. And and that kind of information is different for all of us, uh, you know, thinking about who might be uh, under threat by having their real location um, identified or, you know, something that might, give information about their children or their families, things like that. So I'm I'm thinking a little bit about doxing, but kind of more broadly just, um, you know, trying to approach the Internet as, uh, like, you know, thinking about the things in your life that you want to protect.
0: A short clip has been deleted. It described setting up an IRC server on a dark net, a Tor dark net service. It had too much data regarding the person who used it, but... That being said, using IRC on an onion server is a very good way to securely chat with people whose location cannot be disclosed.
4: Yeah, and and that's, you know, that example is one that is unfortunately getting uh, more common. There are people who, you know, I think another thing to think about is, is it's not just who we are and the things that we know that we have to protect or, like, specific people that we work with but who we want to have in our movements and how we're creating spaces that they can participate in safely. Because if we don't take these precautions, we don't think it matters for ourselves. We're definitely excluding people who can't take those risks.
0: What about cell phones?
4: Cell phones are tricky because they're, you know, they're they're absolutely necessary, I think, for a lot of organizing. But very hard to have any kind of privacy on a phone. And, you know, thinking specifically about, you know, location privacy, it's almost impossible if you're using your phone for any kind of organizing. You know, you bring it with you places. It's constantly pinging cell phone towers about your location. So I think that a particular set of precautions goes with using a phone. You know, number one, treat your phone like a tracking device because it is. If you're planning something, Think about just for example the never again actions that are very public um, when they you know they have their direct actions, but the planning of them is done secretly. And so, if you are engaged in planning something like that, and you bring your phone everywhere with you, well, you're you're keeping a record of your movement from your home to the planning site to whatever the action site is. You're you're broadcasting that information and also making it subpoenaable later. And so I think that if you're thinking with a kind of adversarial mindset, there might be certain circumstances where leaving your phone at home or turning it into airplane mode at home where it can't make any connections to any data network and then bringing it with you and leaving it in airplane mode, that might be something reasonable for you. For other people, simply using, if you have a smartphone, simply using something like Signal for texting can mitigate a lot of threats. So Signal encrypts the content of your communication. It also makes it so that if a record of your conversations is subpoenaed later, either through your phone company or through the app itself, they can't trace who you've communicated with. So that's one thing that makes Signal different from other encrypted texting apps. It effectively hides the metadata as well. And then there are some other neat things that Signal does, like, If folks are familiar with the use of Stingray devices, which are these surveillance devices that a lot of police departments have, that can basically it can do a number of things, but they can one thing they can do is they can intercept unencrypted calls in real time and wiretap devices. And so Signal makes that basically impossible because Signal encrypts calls as well. And so if there's a Stingray at a protest or if you're a police in your area, have a signal and they just set it up nearby, signal will protect you from them intercepting your calls. So that's a pretty good tool for people, no matter what their situation is. And then I guess, like, more broadly speaking, like, what does it mean to have an adversarial mindset about a phone? I think minimizing, you know, minimizing the, the amount of time that you spend using the phone. It sounds silly and low-tech, but really, like, logging off is a good security practice deleting any apps that you're not using, minimizing any potential data exposure like that. I think taking social media off your phone or at least restricting it so that it doesn't have access to things like location or other permissions if possible. And, of course, like having a password on your phone is essential. that it's just like some basic level stuff.
0: How much protection does having a password actually give? In Boston, we had an incident where one of the women, a disabled woman, who you happen to know, had her phone stolen and her walking aids and stuff like that. How safe was that?
4: You know, I, you bring up a good point. I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, the police are not supposed to be able to demand access to your phone, uh, demand your password without a warrant, but... That doesn't mean that they, that they do. You know, it's a, it's, I think of these, all these things as uh, harm reduction and they're, you know, you should definitely have them in place, but that doesn't mean that they will provide you any kind of perfect protection and police will do what they want to do. Often, you know, I think that there are some really good resources if you want to look into kind of you know how often this stuff works, or what you can do if these if your rights are violated. Um, you know the ACLU of Massachusetts has worked on this a lot. I mean, I'm just mentioning them in particular because you mentioned the Boston example. Different ACLUs I think have different approaches, but in general, they have a lot to say about putting passwords on your phones and what the police are and aren't supposed to do about that.
0: If your phone's stolen, what do you do?
4: Uh, if your phone is stolen, like just randomly.
0: Yeah, if if your phone is stolen and you don't know who has it in their hands, if it's a fascist, a cop, whatever, what yeah. do you do?
4: Well, I think that this is, this is one reason why having a password on it is a good harm reduction measure mm-hmm. because, you know, phones, particularly iPhones, have some mitigations against, like, if your phone gets stolen, it's hard for someone to break in without having the password unless your password is very, very trivial. Like, if it's, like, 1111 or 1234 or something like that. So having a, a longer password, either like a more complex longer PIN or an alphanumeric password, which you can set up by just going to the advanced settings for your password. And it is harrowing to think about somebody having your device, but if you have a password on it and they don't have your password, they probably aren't going to be able to get into it. And then Depending on the kind of phone you have, and I'm I'm not as familiar with Android phones in this regard, but I know that it, they have this capability as well. In advance, um, you can take some preventative measures where, like, if your phone is to get stolen, you can wipe the device remotely, like, if you're really worried about somebody um, being able to get into it. And so that's a step that you can take before anything like that happens.
0: Yeah, so that actually was you go into Google Security, and you can look at devices, and there's an option to wipe remotely wipe devices. Uh, are you familiar with Prey at all? Prey Project? I'm not. Okay, that's a, that's something that allows you to take photos remotely and record remotely from a phone that may have been stolen. It allows you, if you pay, you can get it wiped, but the free version has. It accesses the GPS and stuff like that. We've after the fact, we've put prey on all our devices.
4: yeah, yeah, a lot of this stuff is is preventative, which I know is it's hard to do. Everyone is so busy, and then something bad happens, and it's like you haven't thought about any of this stuff until then, but you know, making backups of your device, having things in place like that for iPhones, there's you know, find my iPhone, which will turn on GPS tracking. It's a good practice. If you're in an organizing group, to just take an afternoon together and make backups of your hard drives and get everybody with strong passwords and get everybody on Signal and just take a few hours to do that in advance. And then in case something is to happen, you're might you going to be able to minimize a lot of the harm.
0: With Signal, it always worries me that it uses a phone number as an identifier. Can you talk to that at all?
4: You know, it's a hard problem to solve because they want to make their app as usable as possible, but it requires you to have a kind of relationship where you trust your contact enough for them to have your phone number and your phone number, which, of course, can be traced to your your legal identity and, and things like that. There are some interesting projects that are trying to work on easy mobile communication without phone numbers as identifiers. One of them, probably the most popular one is Wire, and that one works pretty well, and you have handles that you share with, with each other instead of phone numbers. So that is something. I mean, the one issue, I guess, with Wire is it's got lower adoption than Signal. A lot of your contacts are already going to be on Signal. It's just easier. But Wire is, I think, just as simple to use if you can get people to, to install
0: it. Is there any metadata issues with Wire?
4: As far as I know, it doesn't have the same metadata protecting properties, but I also haven't looked into whether that's changed in some time. But they do most definitely encrypt the content of your communications, and they have encrypted voice
0: as well. That's a nice feature. Can you talk a little bit about Briar?
4: You know, I haven't really been following Briar's development recently, actually. Um, I know that it is also attempting to solve this problem for Android devices, but I don't know where it is in its development.
0: I tried to have my friends adopt it, but it's frustrating because it's Android only right now. Do you know if there's a way to get around that, like an emulator on an iPhone?
4: I haven't heard of anything like that. And and honestly, that's kind of why I lost track of where it was going, because it wasn't in any state. It's, it's an interesting project, and I appreciate what they're trying to do, but it wasn't in any state where I could really test it with people or recommend it to anyone So, you know, until they have something that is a little bit more universal.
0: Not all my viewers are technical, and we've been talking about technical subjects with technical language. Would you explain a little bit what metadata is and the dangers of metadata getting out and being available for some of these platforms?
4: Metadata is data about other data. It's descriptive data. So if you have an email, for example, the the content – is the body of your email message. The metadata is all the other associated information. So the to line, the from line, the CC line, the BCC line, the timestamp, the subject line is actually considered metadata, which is interesting. You know, any information about the the servers that um, are sending the the message. So, you know, your email provider and your um, contact's email provider All of this information about, like, who and when and where the message is sent, this is all metadata. With a text message, it's a similar set of information. It's who you're communicating with and when um, and where you were typically when you sent the message. And so the reason why this is really important is that, number one, it's a huge amount of information. I mean, you don't necessarily need to know the content a lot of times. If you have all the metadata, the metadata will give you someone's whole social network. It'll give you their real location, how often they communicate with someone. You can learn a lot of pattern of life information about somebody by having access to their metadata. And other reasons why this matters is that metadata doesn't lie. So it's easy to lie in content, right? If somebody's wiretapping your call, you can say on the call, like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm in Miami, I'm going to the beach, I'm going to, like, drink a margarita. And, like, you can still, you could be in Vermont or you could be somewhere else and the content of your call would be a total lie, but the metadata would reveal where in the world you were actually coming from. And another reason why metadata is incredibly important to think about is that while we have many good technical tools for better content privacy, encrypting content, it's really hard to solve a metadata problem because that's metadata is how computers communicate with each other. And so the combination of these things makes it something that is uniquely important for activists to think about when we think about how we're using the Internet and also for people who are developing the software that can protect us.
0: Say, for example, your activist group uses Signal, what... Using a VPN or forcing signal to use Tor or Tor over a VPN, would that be helpful?
4: Yeah, obscuring your location information with a VPN or with Tor, I think, is almost always a good thing to do, you know, because it's just adding another layer of complexity to anybody who might want to try to find out information about you. But taken even alone, so, you know, the VPN or Tor will – obscure the location metadata. Signal by itself is already obscuring who you communicate with and when. And that by itself I think is like is a pretty big step. So having a VPN or using Tor as well um, would just add to your protection.
0: Yeah I've been thinking it might be interesting to use the signal protocol over multiple channels of communication so that it becomes agnostic to what's underneath it. That's, um, sort of a pipe dream of mine.
4: Yeah, yeah,
2: that would be cool.
0: We're talking on Zoom. Zoom does some encryption. If, if I were talking to an activist in, say, Bahrain or someone who is on the run, how would I do what I'm doing right now? Because this would not be safe talking. This is going to be broadcast, but so, There's no privacy anyway, but if I were talking to somebody whose location could not be exposed, how would I do that?
4: Without knowing exactly what that person's threat model is, if location was the issue. You know, Zoom, I don't believe there is any way to make Zoom function over Tor. Um, And the options for for having an encrypted uh, voice conversation over Tor. There isn't anything that I know of right now that works very well. I do know of one messaging platform that is still under development. I think it might still be an alpha. It's called Quitch. It's kind of a a crazy name. It's a Welsh word. Not really sure why they they chose a word that has no vowels in it. Um, But this is being developed by a really great project called open privacy, which is in Canada. And Quitch is a, I believe it's a fork of an earlier project called Ricochet, which uses the Tor protocol to basically send messages peer-to-peer with all the metadata obscured. So if you had a contact who couldn't have their location information revealed, if you used this tool, it would protect their their location, it would protect the fact that you even had the conversation. Now, it would have to be a text-based conversation, but, but all the other stuff would be there.
0: I'm glad to see that there's something coming out of Ricochet. For quite a few years, Ricochet was the thing I used to talk to most people.
4: Yeah, and, and I'm not really sure what changes they've made to it, but I know that it came from the original Ricochet design. And, yeah, Ricochet just had, like, one developer, and I think it, it wasn't really able to go anywhere on
0: its own. Yeah, it's a shame some of these really good projects don't have the funding to if I, if I won a lottery I would have paid this person to be developing full time. Yeah, absolutely. So is there anything more you'd like to add, maybe talk a little bit about Tor or
4: Yeah, um I think that Tor is is a great tool for activists to use as well. Um most people the most usable way to use Tor is Tor browser which is a web browser that um, protects both your location information and also doesn't reveal the websites that you visit. And so, you know, some of the um, the use cases for activists, for example, people who live in places where uh, reproductive access is very restricted, they will host websites over tour that then, Their users can have a safe way to access, you know, reproductive care information. And also, because they're hosting these on sites that are only accessible over Tor, which are called Onion Services, it protects the um, the people who've set up the website as well. So it's protection for both the user and for the server. Other ways that Tor Browser can be useful for people, if you're doing opposition research on – Any of your adversaries locally, you can use Tor to obscure the fact that you visited their websites, you know, if they're keeping track of IP addresses that visit their websites, things like that. And it's also just a good thing to use to prevent advertisers from knowing as much about you as they do, which is, you know, useful for anybody no matter what their threat model And Tor can be a little bit slow sometimes. It can be a little bit challenging for people who haven't really tried out privacy tools, but I I recommend just testing it out, downloading it, trying it, and uh, and seeing how it works
0: for you. One of the things I always tell people to use, I'm older, I have health problems. I don't want insurers buying commercial information to find out what actual health challenges I have, and that's a problem like if you – to make an embarrassing, like if you, have, if you do a search on hemorrhoids, you're going to get all sorts of awful ads about that, or if you do something for diabetes, you're going to be overwhelmed by diabetes ads, and more ominously, if you say, for example, searched about diabetes, you may not be able to get insurance, and it will go into databases that can be used to deny you services.
4: That's right. I I think about all these things and how data is a more valuable commodity now than oil and how there are no consumer protections in the U.S. for how our data is sold and resold and repackaged and split apart. And I just don't trust any of these entities from advertisers to insurers to marketers to whomever. I don't trust any of them with my personal information and what I type into search engines is highly personal. It's the content of my brain. And so any way that I can protect myself from those inclusions um, is good. And Tor Browser can help you do a lot of that, like just out of the box in one step.
0: Excellent. So anything you want to add before we wrap up?
4: I would just say that I, I know that a lot of this stuff can be overwhelming to people. A lot of folks are, are, don't consider themselves to be very technical and it feels like there is just too much to know and too many steps that you need to take. And I would just advise you to remember that any step you take is going is to help you significantly in reducing any potential harm, even if you just take a few hours and sit down with your affinity group or, you know, whoever you're organizing with and just make stronger passwords on your devices, get rid of unwanted apps, um, and talk about, kind of overall social media strategy of things that you, you know, having a little bit more, I don't want to say discipline exactly, but, you know, having an approach where you're all together thinking about how you're going to protect yourselves and each other. Um, if you do those things, you're going to be in a much better position than you would have been.
0: Thank you, Allison. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. I'm going to stop recording now. Yeah. If you like Vermont Movement News, please consider giving a donation to pay for new equipment and web hosting. We would very much like to purchase better equipment and possibly an additional computer system for our studio. We can accept donations through our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Vermont Movement News. Well, that about wraps up this episode of Vermont Movement News. I hope you enjoyed it. You can visit our website at www.vermontmovementnews.org. We are available on Blueberry, Google Play Music, iTunes, and other directories. We hope to add other platforms soon. Thank you.